Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk downs. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. So excited to be starting this podcast. Uh, it's great to be back in the podcasting world. Uh, for the first show, I had to get on a friend, and I had to get on a basketball personality that everyone loves. Everyone you talk to loves him. You know as you know him as an ESPN college basketball analyst. You might also know him as former Virginia Tech head coach, former South Florida head coach, former Long Beach State head coach. Uh, and as I've told him many times, uh, probably the best television analyst I've ever been around in my time in TV, uh, the great Seth Greenberg. Coach, how you doing, buddy? Stack, I'm going to have you negotiate my next contract. <laughs> I'm uh, excited to do it. I'm excited to do it. Um, I, I think what's going to be interesting is, you know, uh, you know, all this talk right now, NBA draft, there's so much going on in the world of basketball. But I, I think what's sort of forgotten in all this sometimes is, is our past. And I wanted to just go back, take a look at your history, how you got started. Some of the questions that as much as people have heard you talk, and a lot of us have heard you talk quite a bit. Uh, what are, where did all this come from? Where, where did Seth Greenberg come from? Um, and I know you played it at John F. Kennedy high school. What's your first basketball memory? Probably my first real basketball memory was, and it sounds so my dad played for at LIU for Claire B. And mm-hmm. Coach B would travel around in the springtime way back then and visit his former players. And my probably my first basketball memory is sitting at my house uh, listening to Coach B and my dad talk about their old LIU teams. And then, you know, from there, I as I got older, uh, my dad was still playing some, uh, a group of older New York city legend players would go to this park in, in the fives towns, uh, some legendary names, Sid Tannenbaum, Eddie God, some of the great players of that time and would play. And it kind of all came to light after listening to coach B and here's the great Claire B. Now I obviously understand who he is today. He was just my dad's college coach back then, <laughs> uh, sitting and talking about their experiences. So, Probably that's that's you know one of my first memories. Uh, you know, my first memory as a fan was probably walking into the garden uh, in '76 and seeing Willow Street walk out of that tunnel. I was in the last row, all the way at the top, on the baseline when Willis came out, and that was a pretty cool moment. Uh, and then as a player, just uh, I was in the backcourt with my brother, uh, who was a very good player playing at Kennedy High School and started as a sophomore. And you know, being part of that backcourt was a lot of fun. Yeah, tell me about your uh, high school career. I was a good player. He was a great player. He was one of the best players <laughs> in the country, actually. He could really shoot it. But I, I was a hard-nosed, tough, typical kind of uh, future coach. Uh, I was first to the floor. I understood how to play. I got us an offense. I could handle the ball. Uh, I was physical at, at all of 160 pounds back then. Uh <laughs> I could make an open shot, but I, you know, I approached the game. I'm, I'm not sure there was a time after ninth grade where I didn't want to coach 
and I approached the game with that mindset. Uh, you know, I played with a really good post player, Mark Ivoroni, who played in the NBA as a uh-huh. championship rank, played at Virginia. He was my high school center my junior and senior year. I sophomore junior senior year, actually. So I played with you know, some very good players. But, uh, you know, I was your typical, uh, you know, player turned coach. I was tough, physical, played hard, and could, you know, understood how to play. Well, I. Before we, we get into, into your coaching, just to continue on your, your playing career, you, you went on to play at Fairleigh Dickinson, loved your coach at Fairleigh Dickinson, right? And, and I, I know there's a great story about uh, that very first practice at Fairleigh Dickinson. There, there, there's a lot of great stories about that. <laughs> I, play, I play for Legendary Alabama. For listeners that don't know who he is, uh, he was Bobby Knight's mentor. Uh, you know, he and Coach Ivo probably were the first people that really got into the ball you man defensive philosophy. Uh, tremendous teacher, extremely competitive, was UB Brown's high school coach, which is uh, wow. a little known fact. Wow. But, uh, yeah, you know, so I'm, I'm a freshman, and, uh, you know, that was a big thing, Division One. Uh, you know, I was a basketball junkie, lived at five-star camp, loved the game. But your first practice is your first practice. You know, everyone remembers their first. And um, <laughs> so I walk I walk into the gym, and there are 13 chairs lined up right at the foul line. Assistant coach Dick Wiseman tells you to take a seat. So we all, we're all sitting there, and five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by. All of a sudden, here comes Coach Lowe. Now, Coach Lowe is about 130 pounds. He, he wore these maroon pants because our colors were maroon and light blue. And uh, his legs were so thin when he walked, you basically thought he had no legs. I mean, these pants are just swaying back and forth. <laughs> and he's chewing on a cigar, and he walks in front of us for, I don't know, seemed like an eternity. And he turns, he goes, hey, I'm your coach, Al Lowe. Like, we didn't know he was our coach. I mean, we, he was the reason we went to school there. We know he's your he goes, I want you to like me, not to love me. Because loving leads to, as you know what we can't say on the radio, <laughs> yeah. and, no one, and no one blanks with Al LaBabble. <laughs> and basically no one screws with Al. And that was my first practice. And then we went for about three hours, and he kicked our ass. I mean, but that's, he, he was. You did not mess, we called him the old man, not mess with the old man, but I remember many a time, because he knew I wanted a coach, many a time we would sit on road trips or you know, after practice, I'd get some shooting up or whatever, and he'd come over to me and he goes, yeah, I know you think I'm crazy. He said, but when you have your own team, you'll be doing a lot of the exact same things we're doing here each and every day. Sure enough, when I coached, whether it was driving line, zigzag, jump to the ball, front to cutter, three-on-three, rotate block out, shell, you know, trying a lot of offense early, a lot of the same things, especially defensively, that I did. I learned with Coach Lowe. Uh, you know, we did every single day in practice. Wow, it's it, it really remarkable. I I remember once, not going to mention who this was, but you once described about um, a person who had been retired for some years uh, from playing basketball, and you said that uh, he still thinks of himself as a player. Um, and uh, I was wondering, you grew up as a guy with coaching mentors, like you said, knew you wanted to be a coach. So you never had that problem, right? Once you graduated college, you knew for sure that's what you're going to do. 
Yeah, I mean, that's all I would want to do. I mean, when I worked five-star, I spent all my time taking notes, and then uh, in the evening, all the coaches would go out. I'd sit in the back and just listen to, you know, legendary, whether it was Coach Knight, whether it was Marv Kessel, who was a famous high school coach in New York, Chuck Daly, Mike Fratello, uh, you know, some really terrific teachers. And I would just sit in the background with a pad and a paper and, you know, take down morsels. When the lectures were going on, I'd take down morsels. Uh, uh, you know, my approach was different. Uh, I did, you know, I love to play, but my mindset always was, you know, as I was growing up, let me learn how to learn. Let me learn how to teach. Let me learn how to communicate. You know, basketball, it's a copycat game. How, you know, what could I pick from this guy or from that guy to make myself that has always been my approach. Do you, do you think that that's the problem sometimes with young coaches that they don't view themselves as coaches yet, that they still think of themselves as players? Well, I think there are two things. I think that the young coaches today, some are labeled as recruiters, and that's how they become head coaches, and they don't approach it from a coaching aspect, but more from an acquired talent aspect. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's a problem. I think that we don't have enough ways to teach our guys how to teach. There's one thing is to know the game, but the other thing is to teach the game, to implement the game, to have a system, to communicate, to be able to see – what's going on, and then, you know, it's not what I know as a coach, it's what I can impart to my team. Uh, And then, you know, just in general, you know, players today are so enabled, uh, they're so spoiled, uh, you know, that it's hard. You know, it's like going from that environment to the real world, whether it's going into coaching or, you know, ending your career and having to have a job, it's not easy, Stike. I mean, it really isn't. Right. And it, it, they, they've got to become deprogrammed. Some guys never become deprogrammed. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, so when you start your your uh, college coaching career, you're you're at Columbia, you're at Pitt for a number of years. But then, what's really interesting to me is you go to Virginia under the great Terry Holland, and. That staff, you coached on the, the Final Four team uh, in, uh, what was it, 1984? Yep. And that staff had Jim Laranega and and Dave Odom on it? And Jeff Jones. Uh, <laughs> Jeff know, Jones. It was a ter- terrific staff. Uh, yeah, and Coach Holland's probably, you know, Larry Brown is someone I try to emulate in terms of some of the things he does as a coach. I had a chance to watch him teach. When I was coaching Long Beach, I'd go down to practices with the, with the Clippers. But I haven't made a major mm-hmm. decision in my life, Barrier, without consulting Coach Holland. Uh, he's an amazing, <laughs> an amazing, amazing man. Uh, you know, in fact, right before I, I posted my wife, we were down in the Keys, Coach Odom and Coach Holland. And uh, the wives took Karen out for a trip around the island where we were staying. And, uh, and we went for a run and uh, literally – Miss Allen and then Miss Odom basically said, you don't want to get involved with a coach. It's miserable life. Uh, and she still <laughs> said yes. And Coach Holland gave me the blessing. And actually, he, my daughter got married three weeks ago. He was at the wedding. So he's uh, he's had a great impact on my life. That's it, it's beautiful. I, I've only heard great things about, about Coach Holland. And w- what's interesting to me, the final four run that you guys had at Virginia. So – Going back and looking at it, I, di- I really didn't know this. So you beat the Indiana team that had shocked Michael Jordan 
uh, we beat Dan pre- in a previous game. We beat Dan you beat Dan Dockage. He made That's a what I was going to ask. Over in that game, and he'll never live it down. Uh, yeah, we beat. That was we. We could not beat North Carolina. We played North Carolina close two times, but we weren't good enough to beat North Carolina. We were good enough because we played a very similar style to Indiana, and they didn't have a dominant player. Uh, we were good enough to control the tempo, be physical, keep the game close, and then we, you know, we had a guy named Kent Needlin who made a big play down the stretch. We were very fortunate. So you and Dockett still joke about about this all oh, because he had just come off that great Jordan Stopper game. Yes, exactly. I mean, well, I killed. I, I show him the final four watch anytime I get a chance. <laughs> Good for you. You uh, when you you then uh, you then go to Miami. Um, sorry for taking you back memory lane, but it's funny because I, I think most people don't realize this about you or, or haven't dug deep enough, and, and they should, just how many um, historical basketball moments that, you know, you've been a part of. I mean, everybody that's spent a long time around the game is, is going to be touched by, by some of the magical moments, but you're with Miami when they make the jump to Division One. What, what was that transition? Well, we brought back basketball. You know, they had basketball in the Great Red Barry. Uh, Mm-hmm. But they dropped basketball for a number of years, and then we brought it back with Bill Foster, who just passed, who also was the coach of Virginia Tech. Uh, and we started from scratch. We didn't have a ball, a pad of paper, stationary, a place to practice. They brought back basketball, and then they realized they had nowhere we could practice. We practiced the first year indoors and outdoors. Uh, it was wow. crazy, but it was a great learning experience because when you know, I've always had programs to rebuild. And that's mm-hmm. the ultimate rebuilding project is when you start from scratch. We didn't play games the first year. We called our team F Troop the first year. We had no players, but we had a good time. Wow. So, all right. So then that's the Miami experience. Then it's Long Beach State, South Florida, Virginia Tech. Uh, your Long Beach State time, that's the thing that stands out to me that's most fascinating and the story that I've read about but never asked you about is – you know, you coach Brian Russell. So uh, Michael Jordan's giving his Hall of Fame speech and talking about all the people that motivated him and brings up Russell. Uh, so then, Coach, how did you uh, how did you react to that when you saw it? He pushed off. There's no doubt about it. I talked to Brian right after the game. Uh, uh, he pushed off. It's a foul. Anyone else, it's a foul. Jordan, it's a defining moment. Uh, Brian Russell is one of my favorite kids of all time. Uh, he uh, He's just, he comes from nowhere. He was under-recruited. We were the only Division One scholarship that that he had. Uh, he has raised an unbelievable family. Uh, he worked at it so hard, a second-round draft choice, played in the league like 14 years, uh, married a gal he met in college. Uh, just unbelievable guy. Uh, and I'm really proud of all he's done. And Jordan pushed off. Yeah. Uh, no doubt. It's, you know, it's crazy because Brian Russell was a great NBA player and uh, a terrific career. And it's wild that that's what he's known. And a terrific college player, obviously, uh, with your with your tutelage. Um, when you're at Long Beach State, you guys upset number one Kansas, which actually happened. That's a final four Kansas team that happened after you guys lost. I was reading an old article. You'd lost by 34 to VCU. Yeah, we got and, spanked. <laughs> it's funny how much you remember that one as opposed, you know, I'm sure the Kansas one sticks out, but you also remember the VCU game. 
so you, you have the number one upset over Kansas, and then everybody talks, obviously, about the number one upsets that you had during your time at, at Virginia Tech. Specifically, why do you think you as a coach had so much success as a giant killer? You know, I, I think what it was is our team was uh, built to, to, to play against better opponents. Uh, we played close to the best. We were physical. We checked people. We, we ran on opportunity, but we didn't run on excess. We didn't turn it over a bunch. We went three straight years, committed the fewest turnovers in the ACC. Uh, I had tough kids that were better players than people thought. Uh, but, you know, like that team that we beat Kansas with, we had Lucius Harris and Brian Russell as two pros. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, but what we were able to do is we were able to – we got good shots. We didn't take a shot. We got good shots. And I think that's what people always get caught up. We're going to play fast. Well, you know, shooting is shooting, but getting a good shot is the key. And that's why I have concerns about the change of the clock. I think 30, you're going to see more bad shots. If we went to 24, you'd see just an absolute joke in terms of shot selection. Um, you know, we don't need to be the NBA game. But uh, we guarded. We were physical. The things we, you know, I, I, I have a philosophy, and I actually I think we did it with you and retail Rick, the art of the upset. You know, own the tempo, limit your live ball turnovers, limit the opponent to one shot, or take away their best option, play four-minute games, and then find a way to close. And uh, we were able to do that a number of times. How how do you mentally prepare your guys, though? You you can list all that, you know, limiting live ball turnovers and and tempo and all those things on the whiteboard. That's how we practice number one. So, you know, we practiced in increments. Uh, and, you know, I convinced our guys, we're not an opponent. We're here to win. This is how we're going to win. It's, you know, in everything you do in life, I'm doing a talk today to a, a group in, in, uh, in Cape Cod. And there are two things. Who are you and how do you win? You've got to be comfortable with who you are, know who you are. And then once you know who you are, how do you win? How are you going to be successful? What are your core beliefs? What are your absolutes? How do you define your ways to win? Uh, you know, because if I'm going from here to Connecticut, I need a roadmap. Well, in right. life, you need a roadmap. And to beat the number one team, you need a roadmap. And I think I, I've been able to clearly define and then have our guys work each and every day with that in mind. I had heard a story once about John Calipari when he was at, at UMass. Um, they were playing a top-ranked team. Everyone was excited. He had a big man who had practiced really well all week. And then game starts, and the kid just looked shook as soon as it started. And uh, I think attempted like a baby hook or something. It was an air ball. And Cal realized he wasn't ready for, for that stage, pulled him out of the game, and said, I'm sorry I put you in that position. Uh, now, you know, I don't know how much truth there is. I've heard the story secondhand. But I'm curious as to when you had moments where you felt that because you had faced these big opponents and, and were looking to pull off the upset, you had guys that, that the moment seemed almost too big for. How did you handle them in the one-on-one situations? Yeah, what, what you try to do is you try to, you know, obviously by playing four-minute games, anyone can play good four minutes. So you know, playing the four-minute game concept is really important. But, you know, to, to me, it, it really is, especially now today, because these kids play against each other during the summer. Yeah. You know, it's, it's being, you know, being yourself. Who are you? Don't try, to be, don't try to do things out of your ability. Don't let the defense speed you up. 
uh, you know, play to your strengths. Do what you do well. Don't, don't, you know, they want you to play a certain way so that talent can take over. Obviously, I would say that to the players in terms of talent. But, like, we would have clearly defined this is who you are. And if you play to your strengths, you're better than anyone because that's who you are. You're, be- you're a better you than they are uh, as long as you stay within yourself. And that's the problem. Guys get so caught up in the moment. They get so hyped up. They, you know, the adrenaline's flowing. They, they, they get so excited that they're not able to play within themselves and play their strengths. They play faster than their abilities, and that's where you see guys make mistakes. Do you think it's easier nowadays uh, to pull off an upset than maybe 30 years ago? And the reason I ask, and just to give it some context, I'm referring to the fact that, you know, scouting is so advanced now. Nobody's, you know, nobody's fooling you. You had, you know, before, if all this, if you guys are at Virginia and uh, you're playing a school like George Mason who may have a pro on their roster, you may not know much about that roster. But nowadays it seems like scouting's so advanced but at the same time, there's bigger stages, a lot more pressure, social media. Upset tougher then or tougher now? Uh, I think it's probably tougher. Uh, it, was easy, it's t- it was tougher then because, and, and for a different reason. These kids play so many games and it's so hard to, you know, to flip that switch 32, 34, 36 times that, uh, you know, that, and, and their attention span, the more, you know, more of these great teams are younger teams. So, you know, you have a mature team playing against a team of freshmen and sophomores. You have an advantage to some extent. So, uh, you know, back then you were playing against juniors and seniors. You were, you, were, you were playing against teams that were invested in winning. And I think it was harder to beat those mature teams than these young teams that, you know, maybe are not physically mature, mentally mature, or, or as emotionally mature. All makes sense. Makes, makes total sense. Uh, when you're at Virginia Tech, obviously the story that's become so big now and was big, obviously, um, you know, when Steph Curry was at Davidson is the, the whole Curry saga. Um, the story that everyone, the narrative that's that's presented is, oh, well, you know, Steph, Steph Curry wanted to be at Virginia Tech and Seth Greenberg didn't, didn't want him there, didn't see him as a player there. Can you clear up what actually happened with Steph Curry and what your relationship's like now? Yeah, I mean, I did. I, we did want him. I did a home visit with him. We recruited him. We didn't have a scholarship, so we couldn't have a scholarship to offer because we had two kids committed as sophomores. And we just didn't have a scholarship, so we went and visited with the family and said, look, we don't have a scholarship right now. One will probably free up. And if it does, it's yours. Uh, but we had Jamon Gordon and Xavier Dowdell as our backcourt, ideally <laughs> – Probably the best case scenario, one guy was defensive player of the year in the ACC, one guy was first team all ACC, is for you to redshirt, practice against those guys every day, and you, you know, you have a four year career and you'll be good to go. I mean, he was 145, 50 pounds at the time. Uh, it made perfect sense, and the family had millions of dollars. It's not like money was going to be an issue. Right. Uh, if, if you wanted to attend Virginia Tech. But, uh, you know, in the end, he made a great decision. Bobby McKillop's a great coach, he had a great career at oh. Davidson. He continued to get better. Uh, had an incredible season and led Golden State to a championship. And there should be, you know, there's, you know, he he won in the deal, uh, and we're happy for him. Uh, but uh, right. you know, the, the, how it's been represented is probably that doesn't make as good a story, and that's fine. But uh, I, I did a home visit. No one else in the ACC, the Big East, the Big Ten, the SEC did a home visit with with the Curry family. I was the only one who did a home visit with him. 
you know, we had him down to campus, and, uh, you know, I thought he was a really, really good player. Uh, you know, Davidson and Charlotte were the only two other schools, even the mid-major level, that, that, that did a home visit with him. Yeah, anybody who goes back and looks at uh, – I, I wanted you to have a chance to say that. Anybody who goes back and, and looks at, at who was on him at that time, I mean, you guys seemingly were the only major. I mean, you were seeing, like you said, Wofford and, and schools like yeah, that. Yeah, Southern Conference schools. Yeah, and it's it really is a it really is a shame as to how it's been presented. And the, the funny part to me has always been that here's this skinny kid who's skilled, has talent, and you know you hear from coaches and analysts about you know calling it a mistake and this and that. And then you know Seth Curry comes around a couple of years later, and he ends up at Liberty because the major stayed away from him, too. Well, and then no, obviously... now, 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 we actually recruited Seth, and, and, Seth and, the, and the same thing. We had a scholarship, but we wanted a redshirt. He didn't want a redshirt. Oh, okay. See, I didn't even I didn't even know you guys were involved in Seth, so that's interesting. Yeah, yeah we uh, were. That uh, was Seth, uh, Seth and, and, and Dell right at his high school. Yeah. Uh, so, Coach, at, looking at a story like Steph Curry, but – a lot of times we always talk, we see it now and it's revisionist history and everything, but you bring up a good point about the idea that it worked out for him and other players. Um, everything in basketball seems to come down to, to fit and having that, that ability. It seems like, and he's just one case of this, but having that freedom that he ended up with at, at Davidson and just having Bob McKillop as a coach and all that allowed him to blossom into a player. You must've seen that through the years where certain guys you thought were going to be great players didn't pan out for whatever reason, whatever the fit was. And probably some other guys that weren't expected to be great turn into great players. Yeah. I had Brian Russell. I had Lucian Harris, Lucius Harris. I had Malcolm Delaney. These guys were all under recruited. They were really Xavier Dowdell didn't have another division one scholarship besides Virginia Tech. You know, no one recruited Jermon Gordon. So, you know, I've been on both sides of the equation, and that is a fine line. A lot has to do with character. A lot has to do with toughness. A lot has to do with coachability, uh, willingness. Uh, you know, it's not an exact science. You know, there are mistakes every year. Uh, you know, you'll see it. You see you see it all the time. You know, yeah, for every, you know, Leo Okafer and Carl Anthony Towns, uh, you know, there's a Damon Lillard and a, and a Steph Curry. I mean, it's just the way it is. Yep. Uh, what do you think separates good coaches from great coaches? Great coaches have the ability to connect and uh, and reach their players, earn the trust of their players. You know, it has nothing to do with the X's and O's. It has to do with, you know, the Jimmys and the Joes and, and the ability to communicate and to reach and get your players to trust and believe in you. And, you know, the guys have got to be playing for you, not just playing to play. And that's the difference between good and great coaching to me. When you're watching a game, what what kinds of things are you looking for? And I don't even mean as an I don't necessarily even mean as an analyst. I'm talking about you know on your couch hanging out watching the NBA Finals. Let's say what what kinds of things yeah. are you looking for? Yeah, I, I look at the game in a different prism. You know, I, I get a kick, and you know, you know, we have quote unquote insiders that think they're analysts, and uh, you know. You know, I'm I'm looking at how they're guarding the ball screen, how they attack in the ball screen, where are they doubling the post from, you know, what what are they getting to the slot quick enough? When the point guard comes off the ball screen, is he reading all five defenders? Does he read the roll up? Does he read the skip? Uh, you know, what what are they 
switching. Are they switching, you know, you know, small, small to switch, switching small, big. And if they do switch, you know, what seals are they looking to get? How are they trying to isolate a guy? Uh, you know, my mind, it's, it's crazy. I still watch games. And my mind is racing. Like I'm, I'm putting together either a, a scouting report or ready to make an adjustment, you know, during the course of the game. Do you get nervous when you're watching games? No, I don't get nervous, but I, I don't like a lot of conversation. My my family hates watching games with me because they want to talk, and I I just want to I want to watch the game. It's 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 kind of a funny thing. I I watch the game leaning forward in my chair like I'm I'm coaching. When you're when you're watching games and it's uh, you know your contemporaries and and they're going at it, uh, will you reach out after a game if it's a tough loss? Uh, obviously, big win. It's it's easy to do, but but tough loss or tough situation, how? I guess the bigger question is, how connected are you with, with the guys that you uh, came up with in the coaching community? I'm really close with them. I mean, I speak to guys each and every day, you know, four or five guys each and every day, a lot of them more often. And, uh, yeah, I, I, my funniest one is watching Jay Wright a couple of years back. He's playing Georgetown, gets a terrible call by Bobby Donato, who's a very good official, who's retired. And uh, Jay has about a 16 buttons on his suit and keeps them all buttoned while he loses his mind. And I lost the game, and I knew he'd be hurting a little bit, so I left him a voice from message saying, Jay, I cannot believe you got really screwed, but more importantly, how did you keep all those buttons buttoned? <laughs> and just just to give him, you know, he called me back, and, you know, we, we vented. But, yeah, I, I talk to my guys, win or lose. Uh, we have a, you know, I have a group, and I don't want to get to their names, that we bounce stuff. Right. We go, when, we, when I was coaching, we would bounce stuff off of it, trade ideas. We all have the same problems, and uh, it's almost therapeutic because, you know, unless you've lived it, you you don't know really what it's all about. Well, I was going to actually just ask you that. What is it that, you know, people don't understand about, about being a, a coach? Uh, is there... Anything that you can tell us that we can't see because we watch the games, you know, um, coaches are, I mean, fans are on these message boards. You've got, you know, the way that Twitter is all that. Everyone seems to be analyzing everything that happens during the course of a game. But what is it that we don't understand as just the casual fan? Well, I've got a bunch of interviews today, so we don't have enough time to go into what you don't understand. <laughs> There's just so much that goes in, that goes into it that that impacts what happens on the court. Uh, you know, not just the preparation and practice, but it could be a test, it could be a girlfriend, it could be a parent issue, it could be, uh, you know, uh, an interaction in the locker room with another player. Uh, you know, there's so many different things that impact a, a player's performance in a game and execution. Uh, dealing with those things is as important as dealing with the X's and O's. Because you see, you can run a bad play with a team that's trusting and on the same page and score. You can run a great play with a team that lacks trust, all right, and respect and not score. So, like, the bigger issue with your team is getting to trust, trust and respect you. And how you get to that point is paramount to your success. Um, you know, so, you know, during the course of the season, just keeping your team on the same page, believing in each other, trusting each other, not trying to get outside themselves uh, is exhausting. And knowing, you know, when to give a day off, when to practice hard, when to back off, how to deal with film, individual meetings. Uh, all those things are, that's a constant 
that's going through your mind as a coach in terms of managing your team, it's its expectation and, and the ebb and flow of the season. Did you ever want to coach in the NBA? You know, if I did that, I would have had to do it a long time ago. Uh, you know, it's just, it, there's just, you know, it's a different game. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's coaching at its highest level. I used to, when Coach Brown was with the Clippers, I used to go down there all the time and, and watch him. And it, it's a great game. Uh, and the players are so good. Uh, it's exciting, but you know, I don't think that's in my future. You guys are stuck listening to me pontificate. <laughs> um, we'll wrap up here in, in a moment, but I just have a couple more things I wanted to ask you. You're a member of the Five Star Hall of Fame. For those who don't know, and you should be embarrassed if you don't know, Five Star is you know what for a long time the the preeminent place for summer basketball and summer basketball camps favorite story all time from uh, a summer basketball camp favorite story uh you know probably uh Mike Fratello they called him the alligator and he uh he basically oversaw would oversee you know morning stretching conditioning and discipline. And uh, so one one day these kids were acting up a little bit. So they had to be out at like five o'clock in the morning. We called it the alligator. The alligator had to, you know, they had to go meet with the alligator. And Mike decided to tell uh, these guys, all right, here's the deal. I want you to go down that hill. This is old Holmesdale, so it was in the woods. Go down that hill and bring me a piece of grass. It was about a half mile down there and then a half mile back. And you got to do it in 10 minutes. So the kid takes off, and you know, then we're done. Kid takes off, runs all the way down the hill, snatches a piece of grass, sprinting back, counting it down, you know, 9.58, 59. The guy dives across the line. He thinks he's got it, hands the piece of grass to the alligator. And Fratello goes, wrong piece, do it again. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it. You know, so uh, as, he, as Coach Babble would, would have said, as the count says, a one more time. But, uh, no, I mean, you know, the greatest thing, that my greatest experience is from Five Star, really just, you know, that was a great platform to learn how to coach and listen to great coaches. We don't have those platforms anymore. And, and it's a shame because it, it really is something that's very good for young coaches, but it's it, it doesn't happen anymore. And it's very, that, that's sad to me. It's weird because non-basketball people probably think of the summertime as basketball being dead. But meanwhile, you know, playing, growing up, that was – those were some of my fondest memories was were playing in camps and uh, hearing all these – you know, Dick, Dick Harder do his tour of all the summer camps, and I'd see him every week at the different camps that I was at and, you know, all the great coaches that would make their make their rounds. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm actually speaking. I'm going back. I'm going back to the future. I'm going out uh, this summer and speaking at a bunch of camps like I did back when I was a kid. So uh, that'll be I fun love for it. me. Just you know, just a way to kind of give back to the game that you know that's been so good to me. I I love it. Last question for you, Coach. Now that you're a broadcaster and you're fully entrenched in it, uh, people love what you're doing. Obviously, your work on game day, which. You probably should have been on game day week one, but you've, you know, you've been an unbelievable broadcaster and somebody I, I loved working with when, when we were working together. 
What do you know now that you didn't before? I think the biggest thing, if I coached again, I would have so much more flow to what I did uh, and how I how I coached my team uh, that, you know, rather than push it, secondary, pull it out, set, um, you know, and then have, have a short clock situation. You know, I would want to. I would want to what I call play on, and I think that's important. Have you know, trust my players, and have and whatever we did did at the end of the break, coming out of the break. What I'd want to do is I'd want to just flow into our offense and stay with it. We don't have to run a, a ball screen, or as our second, seven second offense. At the end of the shot clock, you can continue to just play basketball and trust your players to get a shot out of your systems as opposed to having to reset. And I, I think that's something that I would like to see more coaches do. And, you know, as I'm, I'm speaking to a lot of clinics in the, in the, in the, in the fall, that's going to be one of my, my, my big things. Flow, you know, pace and flow are important. Not, not, don't flow to flow, flow to get a good shot and then trust your players to make a good decision. I love it. I, uh, well, all these guys are lucky to hear you speak. Um, they probably don't even appreciate it now, but, but they will just like you were mentored by Claire B and Terry Holland and all the, you know, Larry Brown, um, you know, young coaches, uh, should be if, if they aren't already looking up to you and, uh, I appreciate you as a friend and I appreciate you coming on coach. Thanks so much. Thank I appreciate it. You're the best. We miss you here and, uh, and good luck, uh, next month, man. All right. Thanks so much. I appreciate right, it, buddy. You're the best. I'll talk. Thanks, pal. Okay. So the great uh, Coach Seth Greenberg, uh, ESPN college basketball analyst, uh, he, he's really uh, a special guy. And uh, he's he's been a good friend to me uh, through the years. And like I said, I love his work as an analyst. And it's really interesting to go back and, and look at the history uh, of him as a coach and really provided a lot of insight. So That'll do it for this uh, first episode, first ever episode of the Great Point Podcast. Really appreciate you listening. Uh, Just wanted to say a few thank yous. Yao G's, who provides the uh, intro music. Uh, Check out Yao G's on on iTunes. Uh, Also, uh, got some people on Twitter, Adam Ryan, Luke Ryan uh, from Australia, who've been really supportive since the very last time I was doing a podcast. And I wanted to say thank you to them. Uh, as well as uh, thank you to uh, Kate and my girls. Uh, You guys have been the best. So we're back. Great Point Podcast. Please get at us at at Great Point Pod on Twitter. Um, And you can always reach me on Twitter individually at NaismithLives. Again, I'm Adam Stanko. You've listened to the Great Point Podcast, and uh, I really appreciate you listening.